may be seated. Our sermon text today is Luke 14, verses 25 to 35. Last week, if you recall, that we saw how we ought not to be self-centered in our view of life, looking primarily out for our own well-being, but we ought to be looking out for the well-being of others. In today's text, Jesus continues with this theme of not being self-centered in his discussion of what is needed if one truly wants to be a disciple of Jesus. If last week we learned how to properly love others, then this week perhaps we see better how we are to properly love God in the person of Jesus Christ. Follow along now as I read from the inspired words of Holy Scripture, beginning in Luke 14, verse 25. Now great crowds accompanied him, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid the foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, going out to encounter another king in war, will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000. And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Salt is good. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is of no use, either for the soil or for the manure pile. It is thrown away. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Please pray with me once more. Our Heavenly Father, we come to you this day and, and we look to your word and we see... A message that is a difficult message. It is not a comfortable message for us. If, if we are comfortable with it, perhaps it's because we're not even paying attention. We pray that you would get our attention this morning. That you would cause us to see what you would have us see. Cause us to know what you would have us know. And may it interact not only with our minds, but with our hearts and with all of our lives. May you, may you conform us to the likeness of Christ Jesus. May you Help us to see what he has done for us, and may he appear in our eyes more and more beautiful. As we go forth from this place later this morning, may we love you through him more than we did when we got here. We pray it in his holy name. Amen. You know, we, we live in an age where style is as important as substance. The marketing of a product is, is almost more crucial than the product 
itself. So it's hard for us, I think, to imagine somebody starting a movement by repeatedly telling people that they can't be part of it. It doesn't seem like a savvy move, but that's exactly what Jesus does here in Luke 14. And the reason he does this is because he's not looking to just start a movement that has joiners on it. He doesn't want to have people who are going to just pad the numbers. He's not looking to add up superficial totals of followers. You know, we can sometimes do that within the church. I think to discussions I've had with other pastors, I remember one once, <clears throat> we were mentioning the, the tendency that some pastors have to talk about the size of their church. Oh, pastor, uh, how many people were in worship last Sunday? Well, we had uh, about 100 and 50 or so, 150 or so, almost 200. Almost 200 people were here last night. You know, and we, we, we called that in our discussion, we, we call it being evangelistic, you know, and kind of stretching those numbers. It was kind of a funny term. But there is a tendency to do this, but Jesus has no interest in such things. He already has, we see in verse 25, great crowds accompanying him. But he isn't looking for spectators. He's not looking for hangers-on. He's looking for recruits, recruits who are serious about following. You know, when we're recruiting people, there's different ways to go about it. I think of one context is college sports. Uh, Jack just had a friend uh, just yesterday committed to go play soccer at Duke University. And it's uh, really neat. And, and, you know, when you look at Division I athletes like that, they, you know, they're recruited in all kinds of ways. They get to get on a plane and fly to the school, uh, you know, and visit the school, and, and the coaches bring them in, and they put a uniform on them, and they get to see themselves wearing the uniform, and, and sometimes for the really high-profile recruits, they'll have, they'll have like a big video board message in the stadium or the arena, and they'll, they'll show a video that they made up of them, you know, holding up, you know, the, the computer generate this stuff so that this person wearing the uniform, holding up a championship trophy for them, and they they show them all these experiences, and, and sometimes there's some even more unsavory details of the types of partying and things that they take them to. They do whatever they can to, to get people to join up. They show them all the things that they think will be good things, and they don't spend a lot of time talking about the bad. You know, if they lost 10 of their 12 games last year, they probably present that as like, well, come here and you'll have a chance to start immediately for us. We've got lots of room for growth. You know, they, they kind of put it in that perspective, not so much we went 2-10 and ten last year. You know, the Army's like that too with their recruiting efforts. I, I remember the, the commercial campaign that they had back when I was in high school. I, I went back as I was preparing for this and looked up the old videos just to see them and kind of refresh my memory about them. I saw this commercial which showed all of what was at the time supposed to look like really futuristic computer uh, technology and everything, and, and they talked about this tank that this team worked together on that, that used a computer thermal sight laser rangefinder, which even sounds kind of cool today, much less, you know, 30 years ago. And it mentioned talk of teamwork and, and strength and brotherhood and belonging. And then they had that catchy jingle at the end, you know, be all that you can be. Find your future in the Army. 
You know, they didn't talk about things like going and getting shot at or, or things like that, right? Because that's just not as appealing. That's not how you recruit people. You recruit people by highlighting the good things. But there is another method to recruit people. Ernest Shackleton was an explorer. He led three British expeditions to Antarctica. Well, he was one of the principal figures in the, the early 1900s, in the age that was known as the heroic age of Antarctic exploration. The most famous of his three journeys was known as the Imperial Trans-Antarctic Expedition, where, where they landed on one side of the Antarctic and trekked across the entire continent of Antarctica to the other side. Quite a daunting task. When Shackleton was looking for people to join him on this mission, he took out an ad in a London newspaper. Here's how it read. Men wanted for dangerous expedition, low wages for long hours of arduous labor under brutal conditions, months of continual darkness and extreme cold, great risk to life and limb from disease, accidents, and other hazards. Small chance of fame in case of success. That was it. That was a little more stark than be all you can be. That wasn't quite as uplifting as come win a championship with us. But it's more that method that Jesus followed, isn't it? Isn't it here in this passage? He's already said back in chapter 13 how if you're going to enter into the kingdom of God over which he is the king, you'll have to enter through a narrow door. And here Jesus in chapter 14 starts to put some flesh on the bones of that statement. And Jesus is saying that if certain things are true of us, then we just quite simply cannot be his disciples. He says we can't be his disciples if we do not hate our families and ourselves, if we do not bear our cross, and if we do not renounce all that we have. The problem, of course, is that our priorities run diametrically opposed to all of these. And so let's take a look at what exactly he is saying. First of all, we have to hate our families and ourselves. And you might say, wait a second, this kind of doesn't seem right. Because doesn't Jesus also say we're to honor our father and mother. Doesn't he tell us that we're to love our neighbor, even as ourselves? Isn't the message that Jesus proclaims predominantly one of, of loving others, isn't that something that he pretty consistently says throughout all of Scripture? What does he mean here when he says we must hate those who are closest to us? Well, he's, he's not using hate in an absolute sense. By hate here, I think he means it in a, in a relative sense. You know, there are some times where there are good things in the world, good things that we make ultimate things, and, and that's a problem. Even though it's a good thing to, to raise it to an ultimate thing, we ought not to do that. Matthew puts a little bit different slant on this, and, and it's not contradictory at all. It's just uh, probably another time that Jesus said something similar. 
but I think this really kind of puts some flavor to it. Matthew says in Matthew 10.37, well, Jesus says in Matthew 10.37, whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. I think this is the idea that, that Jesus is getting at when he says that you have to hate these other people, that, that your love for him ought to so supersede all other loves that, that other loves look like hatred in comparison. J.C. Ryle put it this way. He said, if we have to choose, that's important, if, because there are some situations where we don't have to, but sometimes we do. He says, if we have to choose, we must choose rather to displease those we love most upon earth rather than to displease him who died for us on the cross. If you come to those crossroads and you must turn to the right or turn to the left, and you, you must, at that point, upset family or upset the Lord, there's no decision to be made. We must faithfully follow the Lord, even when it comes head-to-head -head with pleasing family. I, John Piper gets at this with a, a wonderful poem he wrote. He, he wrote a poem on the occasion of his son's wedding. His son had asked him to write a poem to include in the wedding. I'm not going to read the whole poem to you, but I'm going to read to you some, some quick snippets from it. He, he writes, And so we met in recent days and made the flood of love and praise and counsel from a father's heart to flow within the banks of art. Here is a portion of the stream. My son, a sermon poem, its theme, a double rule of love that shocks a doctrine in a paradox. If you now aim your wife to bless, then love her more and love her less. He goes on to in the very stanzas after that to, to say love her, love her more than wealth, love her more than friends, love her more than ease, love her more than sex, love her more than art, love her more than fame, love her more than breath. Yes, love her, love her more than life. Oh, love the woman called your wife. Go love her as your earthly best. Beyond this venture not, but lest your love become a fool's facade. Be sure to love her less than God. He concludes the poem, the greatest gift you give your wife is loving God above her life. And thus I bid you now to bless. Go love her more by loving less. You see, the idea that he's conveying here is, is that he, he should love his wife more than anything in all the world except for God. His love for God must supersede, but that's the way that he can best bless his wife is by, by loving God above all things, by setting that example and by, by carving out that path. And in the same way here, Jesus says that we should do this even with our own life, he says in verse 26. He means the same thing. He's not saying that, that like we might say in a, in a moment where, where we're depressed or down or, or we just had a really rotten day and just say, ah, I hate my life. 
That's not the kind of emotional response that Jesus is talking about here when he says that, that we should hate our life. What he's saying is that we need to realize that, that our very life, our very existence, our day-to-day being is not to be as worth, worth as much to us as is God. He is the ultimate. And we cannot be a disciple of Jesus if that is not the case. That's a high bar. But it's a very clearly delineated bar. Jesus goes on to say that we cannot be a disciple of his if we do not bear our own cross. Now, this is easily misunderstood as well, I think, because, because we could say, well, well, wait, it was Jesus that went to the cross, and, and he did something that we can't do. First Peter 2, 24 says, he himself bore our sins, and by his wounds you have been healed. This is basically at the core of the gospel, isn't it? That we couldn't pay for our own sins. We weren't able to do that, but Jesus did it for us. He bore the cross. He bore our sins. He paid our penalty, and it's through faith in him that we can be forgiven, that we can be saved, that we can be reconciled to God, that we can walk with him. It's only through that that we can. If we try to do it by our own efforts, if we try to pay our own price, if we try to earn our own salvation, we, we have to fail. We, we must fail. There's no way we can possibly do it. So what does he mean here by bear our own cross? We can't do what Jesus has already done. Well, there's another idiomatic contemporary use that we have for this. I want to make sure we don't confuse what Jesus is saying for that either. You, you might have said it before. Surely you've heard somebody else say, well, we all have our crosses to bear. And we're just talking about the hardships that we bear in life. And, and it's perfectly fine to use that language that way, to say that that way. Uh, it, it's just an idiomatic phrase we have in, in contemporary American English. Uh, but that's not what Jesus means either. He's not just saying you will have hardships in life. It's true, Jesus said that elsewhere. He certainly would affirm that truth, but that's not what he's saying here. You see, we, we've lost a sense of what the cross is, because for us, the cross is a religious symbol. It's something we, we put on a communion table, or, or perhaps in a stained glass window. It's something we wear around our neck as a piece of jewelry. It's, it's something that uplifts our spirits, that, that puts a smile on our face, that encourages us. The cross. But for the people Jesus was speaking to, the cross was an instrument of torture. It was an instrument of death, painful death, terrible death, gruesome death. So bearing your own cross is a matter of putting yourself to death. It is a matter of, of denying yourself, dying to self, crucifying yourself. Paul speaks about this in Galatians 2. He says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. Jesus meant when he said in verse 27 that 
To be a disciple, one must bear his own cross and come after me. It's the same thing he said back in Luke 9, we looked at many weeks ago. He said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. You know, that's important. It's a daily. It's a thing we do. We daily take up our cross. We daily die to ourselves. Really, it's more like moment by moment, isn't it? It's, it's not something we just do once and everything's taken care of, right? There's, there's some people who would tell you, well, you know, you just kind of pray this prayer and you, you, you ask Jesus into your heart and you're good and everything's done and don't worry about it till you die. But Jesus says, if you're really going to be a disciple of mine, there's more to it than that. There's more to it than that. It's not just, just a, a point in time transaction that takes place at one time and it has no impact on the rest of your life. If you're going to be a disciple of mine, yes, it does involve receiving forgiveness for your sin, that transaction that takes place at the cross and you falling at the foot of the cross and, and trusting in him above all else, but it, it has an impact on the rest of your life after that. If you truly are a disciple, it's not just a matter of receiving forgiveness from sin, it's a matter of gaining freedom from sin, being released from it. Christ was crucified once for all time. Crucifixion of self must be daily, moment by moment. And that's hard. It's not easy. It's not easy, is it? Because, because moment by moment, I find myself tempted. I find myself tugged at by, by sin. And, and, and I, I want to be free of that, but it, it keeps pulling me back. And so how, how can I crucify myself? How can I walk in that freedom? Well, it's by realizing what Christ has done for me, by reminding myself of this fact. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. He says you were bought. You were purchased by Christ Jesus. Just like a slave who was purchased out of slavery, who was redeemed. That's, that's the meaning of the word redeem that's where it comes from it was a an economic term a person being purchased out of slavery being freed from slavery by by the purchase price being paid for them so you've been redeemed you have been purchased and so you're not your own our libertine culture seems to seems to think that i i can just be my own person i can do whatever i want to do as long as i'm just doing it to me right i I am my own ruler. I am my own king. I am the captain of my soul. But God says no. No. The words, oft-repeated words of Abraham Kuyper come to mind. There's not a square inch in the whole domain of human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry. Mine. He's the ruler of all. Everything is his. We are wholly his. And if we are truly his, then we must live our lives as he directs. And so we see in Romans 6, Paul writes, we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Again, this idea of not just being forgiven, but being 
free from sin's power. In 2 Timothy 3, we read, understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty, for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving God, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power avoid such people has anybody ever seen a world that looks like that if not open your eyes that's the world in which we live today and amidst all of that ugliness amidst all of that sin and brokenness amidst all of it what was the first thing that he said there will be lovers of self. That's really the root of all sin, isn't it? Loving ourself. Loving ourself more than we love God. Wanting what I want more than what God wants. And so what Jesus wants is for us to say, no, I will crucify myself. I will bear my own cross. You know, the second thing he says here is lovers of money. And that goes right along with Lovers of possessions, right? Lovers of wealth. And so the third thing we see here in this passage today, in verse 33, is that we can't be a disciple of Jesus if we do not renounce all that we have. You know, if there's any sales pitch that you wouldn't expect to work today, that's it. Renounce all you have and follow me. The reason is because many, if not most people, follow Jesus because of what they'll get from it, right? It's, it's what, what, what does it do for me, Jesus? And, and maybe in the best cases, that means people are saying, well, I get eternal life in the deal, so I'll follow you. But, but in many cases, it's actually just more of a financial transaction even. Because, because there's, there's so many people who believe in and what we could call a prosperity gospel. You know, I just read an article this week, and the author was bemoaning the fact that some of the pastors who were, were preaching or who were uh, praying at the inauguration this upcoming uh, weekend is, are going to be, uh, you know, praying at it are, are, are really preachers of a prosperity gospel, one that, that proclaims essentially the gospel is this, follow Jesus and he'll make you rich. That's kind of the the you know baseline to it which is which is not the christian gospel at all jesus in fact says that 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 you have to give up everything you have to be willing to renounce everything that's exactly what he's saying here in this passage that you have to let go of everything renounce it all it doesn't mean that necessarily you will lose all of everything but it, it does mean that that we are to hold everything we have with open hands we're we're to hold it all with open hands allowing it to be gone at his direction. Count the cost, he says. Realize that following Jesus is not a, a get-rich-quick scheme. Far from it. It is the costliest of decisions you will ever make. If you are to follow Jesus, if you are to be a disciple of Jesus, it will cost you everything. But it's worth it. It is worth it. You see, Jesus knew that people were following him for the wrong reasons. They wanted to see more magic tricks. They wanted to, 
be with him as he rose to power and they could kind of slide in on his coattails. But boy, Luke 14, here he's telling us, don't follow me just because of what you think it, it will get for you. If we're to follow Jesus, we must do so because his message is true. Because he is the creator to whom we owe all loyalty. He is our sovereign Lord. He is our redeemer who died for our sins, who purchased our pardon, who, who gives us freedom, who gives us life and life abundant. He is the one we should follow. Because he gives us all that we could ever hope for. Even as we give up all that we have for him. Jim Elliot's famous words, he is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. You know, in, in essence, it's really not a matter of us giving up anything. It's just coming to the realization that what we have isn't ours in the first place. It's, it's really God's that he, he has entrusted it to us, but it's not ours in the first place, whether it be finances or whether it be be relationships or whether it be talents or skills or abilities whatever it is that we have that we that we hold on to we are to let it go renounce it all give it to god for his purposes you have to if you're going to follow jesus count the cost it will cost you everything in closing he he just makes a couple examples and Verse 28 and following, he talks about kind of the obvious idea that, that a person who's building a building makes a plan. If you don't do that, you might get halfway done and realize you don't have any money to pay for the other half. Or if you're going to go to war as a king, you know, you don't just run off into war and then, oh my goodness, wait, they've got a lot more troops than we do and we're just going to die here. He says we must count the cost in just the same way. Otherwise, what will happen is, is we'll turn away from him. We'll, we'll get there and we'll, we'll turn away from him and we'll realize that we weren't really disciples at all, but, but we're those who were called by his name and, and we'll bring disrepute to him. It will be, it will be a, a mockery of Christianity. We see it all the time. People who, who are called by the name of Christ who, who don't really truly follow him. Let us not be those people. Let us be people who retain their saltiness, as he says here. Not those who, who lose their saltiness, who are good for nothing. Let us be the salt of the earth that he calls us to do. All this points to the same fact. All that Jesus wants is everything. Give him everything. Your relationships, your time, your efforts, your possessions, your very lives. Give him everything knowing he is worth the cost. For he is building a building in us. He is winning a battle in us. He is creating a saltiness in us. And if we live by his power, motivated by his love, saved by his grace, we can truly be his disciples. That's what he wants. He wants disciples that will truly be his disciples. See, we all give our lives to something. The question is, to what will you give your life? What is of paramount importance to you? 
What is it that if you were to lose it, it would make life unbearable? What is it that, that if it was taken away from your life, life itself would cease to be life? Perhaps it's your spouse, your children, your other relations. Perhaps it's your, your job or your, your financial security. Perhaps it's your, your health or your mobility or your freedom or your status or, or your power or your sense of self-determination. Jesus says, if you're going to be my disciple, I must be more important than all of these and everything else. What is it in your life today as you sit here Apply this to yourself. What is it in your life that you just simply could not live if it was taken away from you? It's a one-question exam, and there's only one right answer. The answer must be Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, we pray that we could truly say that the answer to that question in our lives is indeed you. May we not seek after other gods, little g, but follow after the one and only true God, Christ Jesus, our Lord, in whose name we pray. Would you rise with me now and sing our concluding hymn? If you've got the large print bulletin, uh, it's, it's going to be on the back page. There's uh, an extra page in there that got put in by accident. So it's hymn number 596, I Surrender All. Let's rise.